Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. If you are new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is Alistair McLeod, the head of research at Gold Money Incorporating Shift Gold. Now, full hour conversation here. We covered a lot of ground. I think this is a very important conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we begin by talking about the inherent complexities in our global finance system and as a consequence of that how challenging it can be to actually pick out the vulnerable points in our system or the domino effect the ripple effect second and third order effects when one thing fails what might fail six months to one year later from there we got into the weaponization of the commodity industry taking a look at the gold sector, at the oil sector, and a little bit on the base metal and rare earth sector, what we're seeing develop uh, from the BRICS block standpoint and what the West might do to respond. We wrapped up this conversation discussing the cycle of empire and where we might be in the long-term American empire. So fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed this one. I know you're going to as well. As always, if you enjoy my content right beneath this piece of content. There's a link where you can sign up for my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday and I discuss topics just like this and plenty others. And then I overlay human psychology and behavioral economics, jumping into the heuristics, biases, and blind spots that create our best and worst decisions as investors. Over 40,000 investors hear from me every Sunday and I get amazing feedback. I'd love to have you join the team. Hit that link if you'd like to. And special announcement on the back of the commodity wars that we are seeing emerge and that we talk about in this conversation. We have launched the Commodity University for anybody who's looking to begin building a portfolio or just understand the intricacies of the commodity industry. Hit up thecommodityuniversity.com to check it out. It's a phenomenal 10 chapter video course. I'm very excited about this and can't wait to hear what you think. Thecommodityuniversity.com. All right, here is Alistair McLeod. Enjoy. All right, here I am joined by Alistair McLeod. Alistair, it's great to have you on the program. Appreciate you making the time. Thank you very much for having me on your program, Jay. Well, let's start here. Uh, This is a common conversation on my channel and most of my peers. It's the the whether or not the Fed will pivot and when conversation. So just to give me some context and my audience some context, do you land in one camp or the other, the sort of near-term pivot camp and a return to um, falling rates, or do you fall in the higher for longer? This is the new trend, and we could probably expect money to cost this much, if not more, for the for the foreseeable future. Where do you land, Alistair? Higher for longer. This is the new trend, and I'm very happy to explain why. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's let's start there. I'd love to hear that. Well, there are two things. Um, firstly, there's the obvious one, and that is um, uh, inflation. I mean, you, you can already see that um, uh, energy prices are being ramped up. This is, I would say, deliberate um, by um, a partnership between Russia and Saudi Arabia, who, um, as OPEC+, Plus, as the main players in OPEC+, Plus, engineered a 2 million barrels a day cut in oil earlier this year, And more recently, um, Russia and Saudi between them have cut it by further 1.3 million barrels a day. Um, What's important about that is that it reduces the supply of distillates and particularly heating oil and its very close cousin, diesel. Um, Heating oil is obvious. I mean, we're getting into the new um, winter um, and stocks aren't there really i mean you know that the, the, there isn't if you like a buffer of stock uh to see us through the winter i mean we've been turning our backs on fossil fuels and all the rest of it so um, we rather sort of missed that one and probably more importantly in terms of the effect on um, a wider range of prices is um diesel and russia's even gone even further uh, what it's done is it's cut its production of diesel um claiming that um it's um uh, you know it's it's its refineries need 
need um, uh, maintenance and uh, they want to divert diesel for the domestic economy. Now, the point is that diesel is over 95% of anyone's um, logistics, you know, all trucks, trains, whatever, whatever. I mean, basically, it's diesel. So that's going to have a major impact across the board. And then if you look also at some of the grains prices, I mean, they're up as well. Um, so all in all, we're going to see a resurgence of inflation this winter. And I think it would be very difficult for uh, the central banks to justify cutting rates in the face of that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the banks are over leveraged on their balance sheets. Um, uh, it's not so noticeable in Canada and America, but um, if you look at Japan and you also look at um, Europe, the level of leverage in the big banks is absolutely staggering. I mean, you've got asset to equity ratios in excess of 20 times. Now, just think about that for a moment. Um, you know, if there is a loss, it's magnified, you know, on the, on the balance sheet, it's magnified in terms of its effect on wiping out equity capital. So they are reducing um, their exposure as much as they can. And it's not it's not just, um, you know, the European and the Japanese banks. It's also banks everywhere. Um, I mean, we've heard Jamie Dimon make comments and his economists having to row back. I mean, that was as long ago as 18 months ago. So <laughs> this is something which is basically leading to a credit squeeze, because what happens when you restrict credit at a time when um, economies are slowing and therefore um, uh, stock isn't being shifted off the shelves? Um, companies need more cash, you know, cash resources, if you like, in order to keep the doors open. Um, what happens? I mean, basically, you've got a credit crunch. You are going to have, irrespective of what the central banks do, you're going to have rising interest rates. I mean, at the, you know, at the real end, uh, when you go and ask your bank for some money, he's going to say, he's going to say no, that's going to be his first first answer. And his second answer is, well, we can let you have a sum, but it's going to come at a cost. And so I just don't see interest rates dropping for some considerable time. And um, I think actually it's it's potentially even worse than that, because um, I'm old enough to have been a stockbroker during the 1970s. And I saw the world settling down post Bretton Woods to um, a new currency, fiat currency regime. And it was a pretty uncomfortable experience. Um, I mean, it got to the point where it even drove prime rates, um, US prime rates up to 20%. Uh, and interestingly, gold went up to, I mean, at one stage, 850 bucks on morning fix. I can't remember the exact date, but you know, the, the, these were not good times. And I think that um, Having having uh, had zero interest rates, which are absolutely ridiculous, negative interest rates in Europe and uh, Japan, even more ridiculous, um, you know, they've overcooked it. And the result is that that destabilization of currencies is returning. So credit is being destabilized in terms of its value. And that just means one thing. We're going to see far higher bond yields. I mean, I recall um, vividly uh, the issue of three um UK government gilt um, bonds with uh, coupons of 15% and over. Now, just imagine what that does to government finances today, you know, particularly America. I mean, but it's going to go there, I think. And I, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I just can't see why I'd be wrong. That's the only other only only thing other than just sort of hope, well, it can't be that bad, surely, you know, but that's not an argument. Um, we're looking at, I think we're looking at, um, this new um, uh, change, if you like, whereby the um, fiat currency world, I think, has run its course and we are moving towards something else. And people have described this. I mean, even sort of eminent uh, commentators like uh, Sultan Pozar are saying, well, you know, it's, we're moving into a commodities driven world. Um, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, and I think that um, this is a new era the adjustment going out of fiat currency is going to be extremely painful. Okay, I want to spend some time talking about that. First, I have to say that your assessment of the uh, the the shift in um, 
rate cycles is aligning with more and more guests that I'm having on. And this was not the case six months ago. And I don't know if you, if you noticed this, but you know, when, when rates initially started to rise, you know, breakneck speed, all of this price of money is going up. Most commentators were like, this won't last, right? This will continue until something breaks or, you know, but we can expect to pivot probably, you know, within 18 months. And those voices have gotten increasingly quiet. I'm hearing more and more perspectives like yours. Last week, I had uh, James Grant on the show and he was running me through sort of how rates tend to move more in generational cycles, right? 40 year cycles, secular uh, rises, secular falls. And he believes very, very similar that we're in this new era. Um, tectonic shifts have occurred. Of course, my first question, let's stick with this actually. If rates maintain, how is the Fed going to afford their interest payments? I mean, that's the big question, I suppose, is that is that if rates stay where they are, you know, the, the US government can't afford its own debt. What happens in that scenario, Alistair? What do you think? Is there cuts that can be made to, to certain it's, it's budget items? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, the uh, who was it? I think it was the IMF produced a paper about this subject, but not so much about the Fed, but more about um, the euro system, which is comprised of the ECB and all the national central banks. And in that paper, they were looking at the uh, position of I, I think it was five of the major um, national central banks and the ECB itself. And uh, yeah, I mean they're all deeply underwater, deeply into negative equity. And just to put this into context, if you and I were running a business with negative equity and we continue to do so, we'd be in jail. I mean, you know, that's what we're talking about, actually, Jim. Yeah. Anyway, you don't jail central bankers. So, so um, you know, they, they get a, um, a pass on that one. But um, that paper was interesting because what it did, I mean, I'm talking, you know, as about your, your comment about the time and how more and more people are moving towards an understanding that it, rates are not going to come down quite so quickly or whatever. Um, what they were doing was they didn't have an opinion on the rates, but what they did was, did was they took the market opinion. And the market opinion at that time was that rates might go slightly higher and then they would start going down. Um, and so they concluded in that paper that these central banks had no problem at all if they just wrote it out. You know, What? <laughs> <laughs> so now we have actually we're beginning to see i think the evidence and i think i think your point is an interesting one more and more people are beginning to see that interest rates are not going to come down quite so earlier this is a more serious situation interest rates are going to stay higher however they justify it, whether they say it's um some sort of long-term cycle or something like that i mean sure. it's irrelevant but, um, you know, the evidence is going that way now. And now under those circumstances, central banks like the Fed are going to have a real problem. The Fed takes the view that it doesn't need to value the bonds on its uh, balance sheet um, at uh, mark to market. What it just does is a straight line between its purchase part point, you know, you know its purchase uh, price, which let's say is $98 and, you know, um, or 100, as it were, to the redemption price of 100. So they just straight line it between 98 and 100. Um, but this conceals a real problem, underlying problem. Now, I think under normal circumstances, you would probably accept that. But there is another problem with rising interest rates, and that is the effect in the economy. It is the effect on markets. They'll undermine uh, financial asset values. It will uh, expose businesses which are over leveraged with unproductive debt. And these will rebound on the commercial bank banks in the form of non-performing loans. So what we're looking at is we're looking at central banks with negative equity potentially being asked to participate in the rescue of commercial banks who are falling under because of higher interest rates. Now, I mean, is this a, a recipe for stability? I think not. That's, you know, and this this is this is one of the problems, I think, that um, is going to become increasingly evident uh, as the months go by. And, and two things that you mentioned, uh, you know, compromising asset values, or I guess just, you know, dropping asset values as a consequence of more expensive money, uh, that decreases tax receipts income to the government is uh, decreased yeah. as a consequence. Same with the Absolutely. bankruptcies. I mean, you just talked about, you know, 
non-performing yeah. loans. Well, we saw record bankruptcies reported in the United States in the month of August. I think at least it was a 40-year record. I might have that. It could have been longer. I think it was a 40-year record. Um, less tax receipts to the federal government. So, you know, yeah. massively hurting income. Well, exactly. I mean, it's an extremely good point because um, uh, the American government is going into this um, downturn in the economy. Let's not, I'm not going to call it a recession or slump or anything like that. But economic activity is going to slump, let's face it. It's going to go down. I don't care about the measure of GDP. That's a false number, completely false. Under those circumstances, um, you're right. I mean, revenues are going to collapse and uh, the deficit is going to go from $2 trillion in this year, fiscal year ending at the end of this month to, I don't know, I mean, what, $3 trillion, $4 trillion? Now, on top of that, just imagine... And we'll just imagine for a moment that um, you have got falling financial asset values. How is that going to be taken by the foreigners who in the past the Americans have relied on to uh, fund a major portion of government debt? I think that the foreigners are turning sellers. And this is even before we talk about geopolitics. They're turning sellers. I mean, we see the Chinese have been reducing their positions. Um, but what we have actually with the foreigners is we have got um, a mountain of um, financial interests. I mean, it's something like the cash bit is around about seven and a half trillion dollars. Uh, that's um, that's that includes bank deposits and uh, also T bills maturing in less than one year. On top of that, there's investment in longer term bonds and also in equities. I think the equity element is something like 14 trillion, depending on how up or down the, the indices are. Um, you've got around about $32 trillion worth of financial uh, interests held by foreigners who so far have been very happy to hold on to dollars on the basis that they need them for whatever reason they think they need them. That is going to change. And um, you're going to see a mixture, I think, of portfolio flows going out and um, you've got the geopolitical situation with BRICS and all the rest of it. They, you know, they basically um, are pretty much pledged to reduce their dependence on the dollar for cross-border settlement. Now, they haven't actually worked out how they're going to do it yet, which is about the only saving grace the dollar has. But you can see that these are, um, I mean, there was this phrase, elephants in the room, you know, it's not one elephant, there are about half a dozen of the bloody things sitting in the room, you know, about to crush you, unnoticed so far. And that's rough. Uh, this, so I think the fiscal position, which you, you, you mentioned, is extremely serious. And I cannot see how that's going to be resolved at anything like current interest rates, bond yields. And not only that, but rising bond yields will put off potential buyers of U.S. treasuries as well. I mean, where does it end? We did have this in uh, the 1970s in the U.K. when um, you found that, the you know, the, um, nobody would buy government uh, debt. Um, the Bank of England was forced to raise interest rates too little, too late. Um, in those days, it was under the command of the Treasury, and the Treasury would, um, you know, try and persuade the Bank of England not to raise interest rates. Eventually, the Treasury would throw in the towel and say, OK, we've got a problem. You better do what you can. And so the Bank of England would raise interest rates, say, by 3%, bang, like that, and then unlock the logjam. And then the funding would start. And that's how we ended up with coupons of 15.5%. You know, um, but you, you, know, you can see that the potential crisis that is likely to happen is going to drive things that way. And I don't know that it's going to stop with yields at 15.5% either. OK, I want to... Uh... Okay, I want to recap some of this. So we're not going to drop rates, likely because inflation's not going to slow down, among a host of other reasons. But that's a really important one. Oil's now climbing again very rapidly. Uh, we know what happens next, right? The price of everything goes up if the price of oil goes up. It's the one universal input. And it may take six months for those costs to hit the shelves, but they're definitely coming. So don't act surprised. So when the inflation numbers start to climb again, uh, we could expect the Fed to have to respond to that with increasing rates, increasing the rates on their debt they can no longer afford. They're kind of in a trap here. Now, if you were looking to strike when somebody's on their knees, it would be a pretty good time to do that. And we're seeing BRICS initiative initiatives surface as a consequence. And you're right. It's like it's hard to determine for me anyways. Like, 
what has substance and what is just posturing um, yeah. coming out of the BRICS meetings in terms of like, but you know, you, you mentioned a trend that you think we'll see, which is a trend away from fiat currency and more towards a commodity driven uh, basket of currencies or something like this. Um, you use the word deliberate when you talked about some of the oil and energy crises we're seeing right now and the coordinated cuts by both the Saudis and the Russians leading to something like 1.2 million barrels per day uh, deficit. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you saw this headline in the Wall Street Journal this week or was it last? Russia has uh, promised to sell gas to the Chinese at 50% the cost they will be selling it to Europe. And so commodities are being weaponized the same way the U.S. weaponized the currency, uh, you know, a year ago with the um, Russian reserves. And we're even seeing smaller nations like Indonesia now put interesting bans on nickel and copper, uh, Malaysia now banning the export of rare earth metals. And so countries are weaponizing the commodities they have access to. Um, what, what does this tell you? What do you make of that, Alistair? I look at this and I'm like, I grew up in the era of globalization where there was enough trust, fragile as it might have been, that we could buy and sell whatever we wanted if you had the cash or the credit to do so. It was a global marketplace. I'm quite convinced that era is over. I'm convinced it's probably not coming back in my lifetime. And what that means is the supply of everything is suddenly super, super urgent. And I expect a bit of a race for both commercial enterprises and countries to secure the things they need because the sharing won't occur like it used to. Do you think that analysis is on point or what do you think about that? Yeah, um, it, I think I think it's a process which is being hurried by geopolitics, in fact. I mean, you've got uh, Russia and China in partnership running the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and also BRICS, and BRICS is where the expansion is. And I suspect also that with Russia becoming president of BRICS from January the 1st, that process will probably speed up. I think also because Russia has been... Uh, driving the move away from fiat currencies um, in terms of settlement for its oil, gas, whatever, whatever. Um, <clears throat> I think that process will accelerate again. If I can just backtrack a bit, the reason it didn't come up um, at the BRICS summit on the 22nd to the 24th of August was um, Russia was very keen to do this. And in, indeed, Russia, um, through news, you know, through RT News and so on and so forth, made it clear that this was going to go on the agenda. Um, it didn't get anywhere, I think, because there were there were two principal um, uh, opposers to this. The first is India. You've got to bear in mind that India, while she is quite close to Russia and has been um, really since partition, um, really has enormous interest in the Western alliance, uh, you know, trade with America, Britain, and so on and so forth. It does not want to sacrifice those. It does not want to put itself in a position where it um, pisses everybody off in the West. Um, and so you can see that there's a slight problem there. The other thing I would add is that uh, Indians, India's economics are very, very Keynesian. They have neglected gold, and it's only recently that they've been adding to their gold reserves. In fact, they've, you know, they spent all their time trying to discourage their people from accumulating gold. Um, you know, through, I mean, there was a, um, it was banned until 1992, so it was all being smuggled, and eventually they gave in. Why? Not because they suddenly embraced gold. No, because they could see that. You know, the rules and regulations uh, uh, prohibiting the import of gold which was just not working. So they better legalize it and try and control it that way sort of thing. Um, so they are anti-gold. So you can see that, uh, you know, Russia trying to introduce um, some sort of trade settlement currency um, backed by gold, denominated in gold, whatever you like, um, really... Uh, had a lot of opposition from the Indians. So, you know, that I think has been put on the back back burner. To my mind, that was, as far as the Russians are concerned, that's plan A. And that's because Russians, India finds itself not in a position to have influence in a yeah. driven economy. Okay. Well, it's it's not just that. I mean, intellectually, um, you know, she's Keynesian and doesn't accept the idea that, because, um, you know, if you, if you back your currency with gold, then effectively... You're um, remove. You're moving yourself from the state theory of money to um, uh, natural money, the money of the people. Now, 
as a controlling state doesn't want to do that. I mean, you know, this is right. this is why we've got fiat currencies. Yeah. So you can see that the Keynesians in um, uh, in, in 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 India um, really don't like that idea. It's not in their psyche at all. And they don't really understand the economics of it. They don't understand how to handle it. And their gut reaction is saying, no, under no circumstances are we going to sanction this. Then the other aspect is China. Uh, China, um, uh, I am, um, I mean, I have information that she has accumulated a lot of gold, if you like, um, off balance sheet, if we can put it that way. Um, and uh, I've speculated that this could be uh, in excess of 20, 25, and today maybe 30,000 tons. Apart from what her people have accumulated, which is about another, I think, I don't know, I can't remember the thing, something like 21,000 tons um, since uh, the Shanghai Gold Exchange opened in 2002, and gold ownership was legalized and then encouraged, in fact. Um, but uh, China, I think, sees this as a backstop position not one in which you know to take an aggressive stance against the fiat currency world because she knows and russia knows that the moment they go on to credible gold standards then the fiat currency system and the western alliance is dead it's like a nuclear financial nuclear bomb i mean it really is just imagine what happens i mean you can see the gold price shooting up what does that mean it means the dollar's going down it means the euro is going down you know you get plummeting, plummeting um, uh, fiat currency uh, values measured in not just in gold, but also in goods and services. And China doesn't have um, a philosophy of um, creating problems for other people. She would rather stand to one side and let other people make their own mistakes and then profit from it if you see what I mean. And that has been her stance the whole way through uh, her trade relations with America through the Trump bit and all, you know, all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, you know, she's never really sort of bitten back. She's just sort of taken action to protect herself. And that's about it. And of course, things like sanctions and all the rest of it, they actually backfire on America. So, you know, <laughs> China's view is, well, you know, that's, that's their fault, not our fault, sort of thing. So um, the idea that they would actually back this um, new gold-denominated um, uh, currency proposed by the Russians, um, uh, you know, that was that would have been very reluctant. Now, things, I think, are changing. Uh, in, in my view, um, uh, the problems that the Russians have with their currency is that it has virtually no credibility whatsoever in the West. Um, for various reasons. I mean, if you talk to someone in the market and you say, well, would you rather have dollars or rubles? I mean, the answer is dollars, full stop. If you go and talk to a politician, um, you, you, you know, you would say, he, he would he would say, uh, you know, look, we're going to defeat this these guys um, and, you know, their, their currency will be rubbish. Why would you buy it? You know, there's, there's so much propaganda, anti-ruble propaganda. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, but the situation is that if... Um, Putin is deliberately trying to push up the price of heating oil and diesel, which he very definitely is. I think this rebounds badly on the ruble. So what does he do? He just has to, um, I think, introduce a gold standard for the ruble. And I think that is likely to happen. It's He's driven himself partly, I think, into a position where he's got absolutely no alternative but to do that. And... If I'm right and that happens, then this is going to speed the end of the fiat currency era. And um, I can't see that intellectually uh, the governments in the Western Alliance um, have the wherewithal to actually respond to this. Um, you know, like uh, saying, OK, we better reintroduce our, our gold standards. I mean, you know, for a start, they're not intellectually capable of doing it. I mean, you, you think that, um, you know, the governments are advised by more by people like Paul Krugman, you know, who are effectively state theory of money inflationistas um, than sound, sound money theorists. So um, I think I think this winter could be very, very interesting. I mean, I, I really can't see how um, Putin can avoid having to put the ruble onto a gold standard. And as to your point about, um, 
you know, selling gas at half the price to China. Yeah, well, you know, they've been selling oil to India. And the result is they've got a stack full of rubles. They can't do anything with it. Not rubles, sorry, um, uh, rupees. They can't yeah. do anything. You know, it's completely worthless to them. So yeah. what's the hell the point of selling oil to, to India? Do you, do you see what I mean? And the, the, the key to this also is Saudis are in exactly the same position. And Mohammed bin Salman, doesn't hang around, you know, sort of pussyfooting to the West and pussyfooting there and all the rest of it. When he moves, he moves very seriously. So this is a very dangerous situation for the Western alliance and their currencies. So if Russia were to transition to a gold-backed currency, would this be the equivalent of them just saying, we're taking gold for oil? That's what they're they're messaging the world and a country like China who very may likely have the world's largest gold reserves. You're right. They don't disclose a lot of their transactions. They are the world's largest gold producer. They don't export any of it. So, you know, there's, yep. there's a couple of reasons to lean that way. Um, and by discounting gas, 50% exchanging gold for that gas. Is that the, is that the lay of the land that I understand that correctly? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah. Russia is essentially saying our, our currency isn't rubles, it's oil. We have a lot of that. Right. That's our reserve no. currency. We'll no. sell it in exchange for gold. OK. And, now, think, and the Saudis are in exactly the same position. And if you look at the price of um, oil measured in gold grams um, between 1992 and today, it's fallen by about 30 percent. That's measured in gold grams. And if you look at the way in which prices move in oil, I mean, measured in in in, in dollars, it's very volatile. In gold, it's not really all that volatile. At the worst, I think it's gone up about two and a half times, and that was probably due to gold being suppressed. Okay. Um, and at the worst, it's um, you know it sort of lost half its value, sort of which you know was probably on the back of a bull run for gold. If you see what I mean, and but you know that's bad enough. But if you look at the price in rubles, I mean, God, that's scary. It really is. I mean, we're looking at the moment. Uh, I think it's something like seven and a half thousand rubles for a barrel of oil. If you go back to 1992, between then and now, there was, um, uh, uh, um, uh, if you like, a consolidation of rubles, 1,000 to 1. So the price of oil, uh, if you like, in new rubles in 1992 was the equivalent of about seven and a half rubles. So, you know, for a barrel. And now we've got seven and a half thousand. I mean, this is disastrous. And if you look at what happens every time the price of oil goes up, it's not that the ruble goes up with it. Oh, sorry, you know, benefits from it. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't sort of, markets don't take the view that this is good for the ruble because it's good for the um, trade balance and all this sort of stuff. No, what happens is that the ruble collapses along with the dollar, but faster. So, um, this is the problem, I think, that, that Putin has got himself, he's got himself into, whether it's deliberate or not, he's got himself into a bit of a hole here. And I can't see how, if he's going to preserve his legacy, I mean, everyone says he wants to be seen as, um, you know, the next Peter the Great uh, sort of thing, which I can t- totally understand. Um, he, he, he does rather act like that. I mean, he acts decisively. Um, he knows where he's going. He's got a sense of direction all the rest of it. But unless he grasps this nettle this winter, I think any ambition to be remembered by the Russians as their greatest leader since Peter the Great is, could go out the window. Because I mean, the way I put it in a recent article, I mean, if they're shivering in Germany, they'll be damn well freezing in Siberia. I mean, this is this is yeah, not right. you know not as this is not as you know a, a frivolous matter at all. Am I speculating too far then, or maybe not? To say that uh, this this discounted gas deal with China is essentially to say we'll sell gas for fifty percent if you pay in gold, um, and maybe we could open up this deal to anybody else who wants to pay in gold, and and that's how we add gold. Yeah, yeah that's the yeah. that's the well, bigger picture concept, probably. Yeah. Absolutely, Jay. They're not quite saying that yet, but I think that's the direction in which it's going. I mean, they would right. rather obviously accept China, Chinese yuan um, over Indian rupees. Yeah. Um, for two reasons. Firstly, the rupees are completely valueless in their hands. And the second thing is they are actually um, in a hegemonic partnership with China. So, you know, there has to be this give and take on their own currencies. Um, and uh, certainly, I mean, I, I can 
I, I can fully understand um, a deal where you know it's a fifty percent discount if you pay us in yuan. Now, whether they can take those yuan and convert them into gold on the Shanghai Gold Exchange or whatever, I mean, you know, I don't know. Um, it may not. I, I don't think they actually need to do that um, because um, Russia also has, apart from her own reserves, which I think is something like two thousand three hundred tons or something, um, declared reserves. Um, uh, she also has uh, gold in two accounts. There's the Gokhran account, which is the precious metals account, and there's also the state wealth fund. And um, my sources tell me that uh, they think there's another seven to 9,000 tons of gold there. Um, so what we're looking at, they could actually declare a situation where they've got, you know, okay, we're maybe a small nation numerically. What are they, 120,000, 120 million people or something, compared with America's 340? Um, but we got twice as much gold, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, you know, this is this is um, um, uh, an interesting situation. I have no doubt they can make this stick. Um, I have no doubt they understand how to make it stick. Um, so, um, you know, this this I think, you know, if it happens, uh, it's going to be extremely serious. I think for the rest of us, um, the reason I think that it makes a lot of sense for the Russians to do this as well, is that it would emasculate NATO. The idea that NATO can continue a war, a proxy war through the Ukraine, I think would suddenly come to an end. It would have to. Um, so this, you know, the, there is, I can't really see how in the West we can respond to this, um, you know, other than chucking nuclear bombs around, but let's not go down that route at all. Um, I think that, um, I think that there's just going to have to be a huge, great rethink, and uh, I mean, it would certainly bring on a crisis in our, in, in you know, in our entire financial system as well. Um, I mean, imagine, you know, we know that um, the uh, bullion banks are short of, of, of bullion. Um, they're short to their unalloc unallocated accounts, apart from anything else. They're short uh, on COMEX, or at least the uh, you know the swaps, the, the bullion bank trading desks are short there, not as short as they were. Um, and uh, there is very little liquidity in London now. Um, so we don't know what the position with the major, you know, with the major banks, the JP Morgans and, and, and you know, UBSs and so on and so forth is. But um, there is not a lot of gold around. And I would have thought that... Um, you could see a crisis in the bullion banking community quite quickly under those circumstances. That is if, you know, this sort of fire doesn't break out elsewhere, you know, with the banking system as a whole, with rising interest rates, with central banks um, in negative equity. I mean, you know, all these elephants in a room. And I've been writing actually about another one, which uh, nobody knows, nobody knows. And that is the euro dollar market. And why does nobody know it? Nobody knows it because there are no statistics. So we assume it's not a problem. But, um, you know, the, the figures I've unearthed on this suggest that the total market there is uh, around about $93 trillion equivalent um, in dollars. This is dollars. This is just the dollar bit because there are other currencies involved. Um, but on top of that, um, if you look at the actual um, bank um liabilities of non-us banks in dollars that's a further 15 trillion which in effect you can add on top of the uh us money supply figures and just to just to clarify for anyone who's maybe not heard that term before the euro dollar is not the euro that's the the dollar market outside of the united states so this is uh sovereign nations that are not the united states transacting in us dollars that economy correct it's not yeah but it's 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 not just the sovereign nations it is it is principally uh things like trade finance it's actually currency swaps it's the currency positions if you like where the dollar is on one leg and a foreign currency is on another and where the bank actually handling it is not a us bank because you can create dollar credit outside america without any problem whatsoever and that's basically what this is i mean the um you know, the world has gone on to using the dollar for everything um, cross-border, you know, whether it's buying commodities, whether it's um, uh, buying and selling goods, whatever, whatever. The dollar is always involved in that, or, or at least something like 88% of the time it's involved in that. So 
um, you know, are there enough dollars outside America to do this? Well, that's why there's so many. Effectively, the credit is created to handle this trade. And that's the that is the euro dollar. It actually started back in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, when I think it was called Regulation Q, limited uh, bank deposits on up to 30 days at 1%. Um, and I think 90 days was 2.5%. Now, obviously, when interest rates were rising at one stage, particularly in London, um, this encouraged banks to borrow um, at uh, sub 1% or 1%, um, even pay a bit more to, to create those dollars outside the US banking system. Uh, and then what they could do, they could uh, buy sterling with it and then cover it forward. And then they ended up with a margin uh, of, um, you know, that where their cost of funds was half a percent less than the Bank of England's rate. So, you know, this is the sort of thing, the sort of engineering which really got the market going. And it wasn't until the 1960s, I think about 1963, when the first euro bond came out, which was a Belgian one. Um, and uh, then, of course, you got a euro bond market, which was built on the back of this credit. So we're, we're looking at around about 93 trillion of extra stuff, short term liabilities in the main, incidentally. Um, by short term, I mean liabilities which exist and have um, a time of less than one year on. So you can see that, you know, come the deluge, <laughs> there's a there's another elephant in the room there. Um, this is, I think, probably something which is pretty serious and nobody really sees where it's coming from. Well, it's almost impossible to see where it's coming from. I mean, is it not to understand the intricacies of a 93 trillion dollar euro dollar sorry 93 trillion euro dollar market 93 trillion in liabilities as you said um less than a one-year term from rolling over i suppose uh it, it, you know it it makes me wonder if the finance the global financial system has ever been this complex we're sort of in a in a i mean i guess the answer is no but are we not in this scenario where it's it's almost impossible to follow the money at this point, right? And when something yeah. breaks, many other things will break as a consequence. Yeah. But determining the, the cause and correlation just due to the, the insane complexities of our global financial system as it exists today and how much of it is just completely misunderstood. Or as you said, there's no stats on the euro dollar market. It's not tracked. It's not covered. Most people yeah. have never even heard of it, don't know what exists. Right. Yep. It's a significantly influential part of our global economy. Uh, makes me wonder how how much of our global financial system does any one person really understand? Everyone's got a little piece, little piece, little slice. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, it's a very good point, Jay. I mean, um, it, it is it is immensely complex and it's gone that way. Um partly because of regulations. I mean, you know, regulations drive banks to find alternative ways of doing things. And a lot of these things wouldn't have happened if regulations hadn't been put there in the first place. I sure. mean, you know, I I, I mean, the, the euro dollar market wouldn't have started the way it had if uh, the Bank of England um, uh, hadn't had this sort of gentleman's agreement, uh, which uh, whereby the joint stock banks, which are our large banks, I think we had four of them at the time, four or five, um, you know, sort of agreed not to um, deal outside the, you know, the um, parameters that the Bank of England was setting. And here was Midland Bank suddenly deciding, hold on a minute, we can make a turn here. <laughs> this was not in the gentleman's agreement. So, OK, you know, it's gone from gentleman's agreement to regulations, as it were. But same same thing. I mean, basically, uh, you know, I've I've worked in a bank and I've worked with bankers. And I mean, as a stockbroker, I, originally I was absolutely horrified at the attitude because, you know, stockbrokers, we were pretty straight laced in the, in the old days. Um, but then my banker friends, you know, they would find it. You know, there was no way they had sort of, you know, principles, if you like, of behavior and all the rest of it. No, the answer was, um, if you can see an opportunity, and you can work out how to benefit from it, do it. Right or wrong, that's the world in which we live. Now, you mentioned you couldn't see many ways the US could respond to competition like a gold-backed economy, right? On the Starting with the energy trade. I well, it's, to not, say it's not so much the economy, it's the currency. It's the currency. They, yes. I, 
Sorry, I'm just um, making the point. I think that's the important point to understand. Yeah, sorry, Jay, I interrupted. No, no, that's great. That's great. And and I'm, I ask myself the same question, you know, what could the United States do to respond? Um, as you mentioned, most sanctions have backfired um, and, and tend to. Um, I, I find myself failing to look outside of the fact that the U.S. still may have the strongest military on the planet. And we've gone to war over the silliest things in our past. And in last week's newsletter, I actually wrote about, because I had a couple of people ask me, could you ever see a world where we're fighting wars over copper and nickel. And my answer was, yeah. I mean, gosh, yeah. I hope not, right? But uh, in the end of the uh, uh, 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the United States went to war over bananas. I mean, send troops down to yeah. Cuba, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras, tens of thousands of people died on the back of um, the United States protecting their interests in the banana trade, right? So it's like, would we go to war over copper and nickel? Yeah, unfortunately we might, mm -hmm. right? We, I could see that. Um, outside of military or maybe, you know, any option, um, Alistair, you know, military or otherwise, any um, retaliatory actions you could see the United States taking or exploring? Um, I, I find it difficult to see because, I mean, I, I think that I think we're in so much trouble. Um, anything we do just makes things significantly worse. And as your point about, um, you know, whether we step up military activity, I'm sure that would be one area strongly considered. And I'm sure equally that, um, you know, part of Putin's game plan, I mean, if we, if we can guess what it is, is to understand the level of um, uh, ammunition stocks and all the rest of it um, that are left in the West. Because if he does provoke the West by going on to a gold standard, then he's obviously got to look to see what the military response could be. And um, actually, we've got rid of most of our, um, you know, weapons and ammunition and all the rest of it um, in Ukraine. So Putin has already consumed most of them, if I can put it that way. Uh, and um, so I think even the military response is a bit difficult to, to see. I mean, we're not fighting a minor figure here. I mean, it's not like Gaddafi, you know, who proposed a Central African uh, currency based on gold. OK, we'd better go in and nuke the guy or get rid of him or something. And I mean, there's a horrid thing on on uh, uh, on YouTube at the moment about, um, you know, how uh, US officials uh, were sort of almost laughing at the, you know, doing away with Gaddafi. I mean, Bad taste. OK, but I mean, it does show, if you like, the morality of the situation. And that's actually what we're de dealing with. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, uh, an extraordinarily um, upsetting morality in all this. Um, but I mean, this the key to, to all this change in behavior, I think, was Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, the biggest signal, signal we have of the lot was Biden goes along to try and get him to open the oil taps. And what does he do? He gets a cold shoulder. I don't even know that he met Mohammed bin Salman for more than half an hour. And then literally a week later, President Xi arrives and he arrives and there are jets escorting his plane. And I mean, you, you had um, the most gorgeous black um, uh, uh, Arab stallions, you know, with soldiers in medieval uniform flanking his limo and all the rest of it riding up to the you know, the you know bin salman's palace and so on i mean you know this was a show this really was but contrast with biden you know who was sort of let in the tradesman's entrance and, <laughs> and kicked out afterwards that to me was the biggest signal of the lot so if we're going to take on russia we're also taking on china and we're taking on the whole of the middle east and as proposed, the Middle East, ever since bin, uh, Mohammed bin Salman kicked out the Americans, kicked out us, if you like, um, what's happened? Peace has returned to the region. I mean, you know, we're all saying it's, oh, China brokered the peace and all the rest of it. But actually, you know, um, yeah, I mean, China may have encouraged it, but basically Mohammed bin Salman has stopped fighting the Iranians. The Iranians have withdrawn the Houthis and the Houthis are now in peace talks. Assad of Syria is now, you know, talking back to them and uh, exchanging diplomatic relations with the Arab nations that cut Syria off at the behest of the Western alliance and all the rest of it. 
Um, the only thing that is a sort of slightly difficult position is Israel in this. Um, but I don't see that Israel is actually being threatened. I think Israel has got enough back channels into Russia um, to, if you like, apply pressure for peace, peace, peace. You know, I think the Israelis realize they can't fight this. They really cannot. Um, so they're going to have to accommodate it. So these changes are major and it's happened without us. We have no control over it. And this is why you had something like 40 nations turning up at um, the BRICS summit. You know, they're not frightened of us anymore. I mean, OK, they won't go, you know, come out outright and say, um, you know, we're turning our backs on the West. No, they won't do that. Of course they won't. But my goodness, they know which way the wind is blowing and they want a foot in that new camp. So this is th these are major, major changing times. And I think that the best thing we can do is accept that we've we've lost this war um, peacefully, you know, just withdraw from our current situation, um, sort out our own domestic economies. I mean, you know, we've got to stop the spending on um, friv frivolous things, as well as, you know, excessive defence. I mean, that's a problem for America more than us. I mean, your defence spending is just ridiculous. Um, and, uh, you know, come up with a plan to control um, and stop public spending growing anymore. Look to reduce it and above all run a balanced budget by force, then you can actually introduce, a, you know, bring back a gold standard. It's possible to do, but the problem is you don't have the statesmen to do it. You don't have the people who understand that this is necessary. And I feel it's going to take a crisis, probably a financial crisis, to focus minds to the point where it's understood that there is no alternative, but to hand the money back to the people from the state, because the state basically screws it up every time. That's the point about fiat currencies. The money of the people is gold. And so what you do is you introduce coinage. Um, you make sure that um, the issuance of um, dollars, whether it's um, into institutions from a central bank, as it were, or to the people in the form of dollar notes, um, <clears throat> is actually backed by gold and exchangeable by gold. And it's easy to do. It's not that difficult. You have to do certain things to ensure you don't make mistakes. I think Russia will get it right. I think Russia can do this. Uh, I think they will lead the way. Um, but if we delay on this one after the Russians actually force us into that corner, then we're going to pay very, very heavily for it. Mm, okay. You know, I, I um, as I'm listening to you, I find myself thinking about I've been studying recently the, the fall of the British Empire, the fall of the Spanish Empire, fall of the Portuguese Empire, and asking the question, based on what I can see occurred in most previous empire over the last 500 years, where might we be in the cycle, the long cycle of the American Empire? And I don't know. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't have the yeah, answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, empires come and go, don't they? Fiat currencies come and go. Um, I, th I think it would be a mistake to compare it with the British Empire. Um, my uncle actually was colonial secretary uh, appointed by Macmillan to dismember the, the, the um, you know, the, 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 the nation's colonies. I mean, to give them independence. Um, and uh, Ian MacLeod did that. Um, and... Um, you know, it was a hasty thing, but Britain realized that she couldn't afford to run the empire anymore. So um, it was obvious that things were going, you know, <clears throat> there were demands for independence all over Africa and, and you know, places like Singapore as well. Um, so we just got on with it and did it. Um, and um, these are the nations now who are part of the Commonwealth. Uh, so they retain the links. And that's the way to do it. I mean, if you're going to have some sort of legacy, then we have a legacy, if you like, with the Commonwealth. Now, I don't know that it really means an awful lot. Um, India is part of the Commonwealth, but it does mean that their channels open for us to discuss things like trade and all the rest of it. Uh, and um, we can still carry some political influence. Um, but the difference, I think, um, between 
Britain today and America today is we go and tell other people how to run their economies. They, we tell them that you know they're, they're you know they're not democratic and all the rest of it. Now, um, the Russians and the Chinese have a completely different view on this. They run things the way which they run. You know, they run. They don't interfere with the politics of any other nation. I mean, you know, for goodness' sake, uh, <laughs> you know, the politics of Iran are nothing to write home about. But all they're interested in is commercial trade and, um, you know, building, if you like, a a new industrial revolution throughout Asia and also now throughout Africa and throughout Latin America, which they are at the apex of. So this is um, that to my way of thinking is the way forward. We have um, shot ourselves in the foot trying to tell everybody how they should run their own countries. It's not our business, for goodness sake. And I know that. And some of that's normal, right? If you think about the cycle of power, I mean, countries like Iran aren't going to tell anybody how to govern. They're focused on commercialization, which makes sense at that stage. And at the height of power, countries start leveraging their influence in new ways, influencing the way competitive countries are governed in an attempt maybe to amplify or hold on to power. Um. And uh, well, I, th- I, th- I, Jay, I think it's more it's it, it's more a um, a social problem. Um, it's it's an attitude problem, I think, um, because when you have um, a you know sort of if you like a, a a social democracy, a democracy basically which distributes money, you have a situation where you, you where um, you know particularly the young and you know, maybe the people who were young not so long ago, um, you know, sort of communistic, idealistic, whatever, whatever. And they become the politicians of tomorrow um, and they are naturally interventionists. And so they will intervene in anything. And they think they've got a mandate. They think that their electorate, who it's not really their electorate, it's just their party supporters, you know, are egging them on to um, say, you know, you've got to stop dealing with the Chinese because they maltreat the Uyghurs and all this sort of stuff. And noticeably, actually, um, uh, Trump brought that one up, basically, as, uh, you know, as as part of his um, attempt to destabilize China. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the, that was um, a, a, an over-aggressive use of that. But, um, you know, there was a time, certainly in this country, if you go back to um, just after the Napoleonic Wars, when um, the statesmen of the time set this country up for the most incredible economic um, growth, industry, you know, the sort of phase two of the Industrial Revolution and all the rest of it, um, uh, you know, th- they understood that the, the Britain's interests um, weren't to go and tell people how to run their own countries. Their interests abroad Basically, they would protect their own interests abroad, like trade interests and things like that, but not interfere with how things were run, say, in country A or country B. Um, Very, very important point. And I think that to go from that to where we are today in the West is a degenerative process. And it doesn't actually get us anywhere. If you really want to improve um, the conditions for the ordinary person in a foreign country then trade with them that's what you got to do not tell them how to behave you know we've got we're off on the wrong foot completely here mm. Mm. oh man alistair this has been uh, a fascinating conversation and um giving me a lot to think about and you know I, I i find myself now thinking okay so how do i make this about the individual right i i can't alter the course of geopolitical events i, I can't you know i've got kids I got three. One day I'm going to have grandkids. And like, how do I make sure that I'm setting my family lineage up for success? Yeah. Maybe by be lo- being located in the right geography. I'm not sure. But, you know, a lot of what you just said, it's like, stop trying to fix everything externally, right? Look mm-hmm. internally, make sure your backyard's tight, right? Is your Absolutely. yard clean? You know, yeah. is there a moat yeah. around your castle? You know, and that yeah. is something that you can't control. Your personal balance sheet, your family household balance sheet, your your personal business balance sheet. Uh, and from there, you're set up, hopefully, to weather a storm, right? Um, yes, any, any words of counsel 
in that regard. If someone's heard this conversation, they're like, this all sounds chaotic, uncertain, and kind of scary. You know, how can I make sure me and my family will be okay when we don't know what's around the corner? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think the one thing that um, is becoming more apparent, which is a point I think you made, um, is that interest rates are going to continue to rise. The idea of an early fall in interest rates we can dismiss. I think that's that. That is the first thing. Once this is more realised more widely in the markets, as opposed to you know people like uh, you know Jim Grant and so on and so forth, then um, I think what you're going to get is you're going to get um, falling financial asset values. You'll see higher bond yields. You will see lower equity prices. So the first thing you've got to do is make sure that you're not exposed to that. Um, or at least whatever ever exposure you have is very, very much controlled. And don't be, you know, don't be optimistic and sort of think, well, I'll just wait until the price recovers and then I'll sell. You know, that's that's death. It's absolute death. Take a decision on that. Um, I think in terms of sectors, um, I mean, what has impressed me recently, I've been speaking at a number of mining conferences where, you know, uh, exploration companies and so on and so forth have um, had stands and, Talking to these people, I've been impressed with um, how uh, much better uh, they have become uh, in terms of controlling their own finances, paying attention to cash flow, not spending stupid money trying to promote their companies, all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, this is a far better sector than it was when I was broking, what, 30 years, 30, 40 years ago. So, so that I think is interesting. Um, and also, it would fit in with the with the meme that we're moving from um you know a sort of fiat currency system into a currency system which um requires more uh, raw materials and metals and commodity backing so you know that's i think one direction in which the ordinary person can think but i think the biggest um uh, um uh, bit of understanding which which is required is to understand that gold is money and has been since Roman times. In fact, before, I mean, it was, it's, um, it's written into our common law. I mean, okay, um, the Americans now call it a pet rock or something, um, but actually it's still money. You know, whether they like it or not, it is still money. And everything else is credit, which was actually a point made by the original uh, John Pierpont Morgan <laughs> to, to, I think, Congress in, in 1912. That is still true. So you've got to think everything you have from what you have in your bank accounts, what you have, um, uh, you know, in, 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 in cash from the central bank, et cetera, all that is credit. And the credit isn't attached to anything. Its value isn't attached to anything other than the faith and credit in it, your faith and credit in it. Now, if your faith and credit in it starts uh, disappearing, then the value of that is going to disappear with it because it's not tied to real money. So what you need to do, I think, is think in terms of, um, uh, am I 100% exposed to credit? I mean, even if you've got things like, um, you know, well, stocks, shares, property is all valued in credit. Why? Because you look at the yield that a property gives you. um, And if it's, you know, if the cost of maintenance is higher than the yield, then the property is valueless. So, you know, when you get a, falling currency value, you know, falling currency value, then that means that in real terms, the maintenance, you know, costs rise and so on and so forth. So, you know, even if you try and hedge out of financial assets into property assets, unless it's farmland or something like that, which is productive under all circumstances, um, then, you know, that's not an escape either. So you've got to think about, um, you know, how exposed you are to credit and what insurance are you going to take against that? And the insurance basically is to own some physical gold, which coincidentally is what the gold money um, service that we provide. But, um, you know, have some physical gold and however much you have will depend on how seriously you take my argument, if you see what I mean. So <clears throat> that I think is, 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 is what I would really ask everybody to seriously sit down and think about. I'm not giving investment advice. The other point about gold is that when you acquire gold, do not look at it as an investment. Do not think I have bought it at, say, $1,800 and I'm going to sell it at $2,000. No, it's not an investment. 
It is money. And money is something that you spend. But it's the last money you, you will spend because you will spend credit first. So, you know, it's there if you like um, when credit goes. And that's the important thing. And you will end up spending it. And you will probably find that um, because collapsing credit collapses um, the real values of all property, that um, it could turn out to be an extremely good move if what I say comes comes to pass, um, you know, if, say, Russia decides to uh, do what it does and it destroys our currencies or our currencies, we destroy them ourselves. It's immaterial which way it happens. But under those circumstances, I mean, just think what a gold mark would have bought in Germany in 1923. It would have bought roughly something like, uh, I don't know, a thousand trillion paper marks or some right. extraordinary figure. Um, not that you would want the paper. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting because um, there's a very, very famous um, Austrian author called Stefan, Stefan Zweig, who lived through that um, in Austria, but also understood very much what was going on in Germany. And he, he wrote in his biography, uh, autobiography, that um, uh, in you know you could have bought a house in a swanky part of Berlin for a hundred dollars. You know, six-bedroom house, swanky part of Berlin, $100. That was just under five five ounces of gold at the time because the dollar was $20.67 uh, to the ounce. So, you know, that's what happens to to prices of real things when credit disappears up the swanny. So gold is probably not a bad thing to consider. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to consider at all. And um there's no downside. That's the other side of this. You know, it's very easy to think, oh, yeah, but that was, you know, uh, why I'm rock Germany. That's yeah. not going to happen to us, right? It's not, it's <laughs> not going to happen here, right? And all this and and recency bias is really, really powerful. It's very important, mm -hmm. I think, to study the cycles of history and see how many populations thought this could never happen to me, right? Yeah, absolutely. It happens again and again and again and yeah. again. It will it's, always happen. It's uh, happened to every currency in history. Correct. Where the next Correct. ones? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Look, Alistair, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it here. Um, I feel like there's still a ton I could pull out of you, so I think we're gonna have to set up a part two here if you're up to it. But I really want to thank you for your time. It was great chatting with you. Um, I learned so much, and uh, I know my audience will appreciate this one. Good. Well, thank you very much for having me on, Jay. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor: follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.